Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. (coughs) Hebrews chapter 11. Be reading verses 8 through 10. And considering the faith of pilgrims. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 10. Give attention to God's holy word. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have told us in your word that you bring life and immortality to light through the preaching of the word. And so we come now, Lord, desiring to know this life, the life eternal, through the means which you have appointed in your wisdom. And we ask, Lord, recognizing that this is your ordinance, that you would bless it by your spirit so that our faith would not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And we ask this all for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, if somebody were to ask you What is theology? How would you define it? What would you tell them? There are many ways that people define theology today. Some think of it as a body of knowledge. They think about it as a science, similar to physics or the legal profession. Many define theology this way. It's a science about God. Others call theology a way to speak about God. They they define it as a uh, set of terms and ideas and a way of talking about God. They define it as a form of speech. The best theologians, however, the theologians of the Reformed tradition, in my opinion, defined theology this way. Theology is the doctrine of living well unto God through the Son by the Spirit. Theology is the doctrine of living well unto God through the Son by the Spirit. And I think the benefit of this definition of theology is that it gets to the point of theology. Theology is not meant to fill our heads. Theology is not meant to adorn our speech. Theology is given to us so that we might live unto God through the Son by the Spirit. Now, under this broad idea of theology, there are two general types of this theology. The first is known as the theology of vision. This is that theology, that revelation of God, where he shows us his glory in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a vision of God's glory that will make you happy. This is known traditionally as the beatific vision. In other words, it is the vision, the sight, the perception of God's glory that makes you blessed. But we don't have that theology yet. That blessing and that vision is reserved for another day. 
The theology that we have now, however, is no less glorious, but it is adapted to a different purpose. The theology that we do have is often called in the literature theologia viatorum, the theology of those who are on the way, the theology of pilgrims. This theology that we have, it's the theology that we have in the scriptures. It's the theology that we enjoy today. It is the theology that Paul speaks about in 1 Corinthians 13, where we, in a mirror darkly, behold the things God has given to us. And it is in this dark and shrouded vision of the glory of God that we are led to heaven. This theology, the theology for those who are on the way, the theology of pilgrims, is given to save your soul. It's given to teach you how to live unto God through the Son, by the Spirit. And it is only understood and lived by faith, the faith of pilgrims. What we find in this passage is the prime example of a faith of a pilgrim. Abraham is famously known as the one who dwelt in tents, wandering through the promised land as a pilgrim in a place he did not own. And so as we look to the example of Abraham, we're going to see an example of what the faith of pilgrims looks like. How we are to live while we are on the way to glory. Now, just a word of clarification here. As we've been going through Hebrews chapter 11, we're picking up the examples that the author gives us and and trying to focus on what the author highlights in those examples. Last week, we saw faith in the midst of the flood. Earlier on, we had faith defined for us. Now we're looking at the faith of pilgrims. I don't want you to be uh, confused. Even though we're talking about these different features of faith, the faith throughout Hebrews 11 is one and the same. The faith that's being described is that one saving faith without which no one can be saved, although it's described in many different ways. It is still the one and the same faith. So I don't want you to be confused as we look at the faith of pilgrims. And what do we learn from this passage? Well, something very simple. We learn that a pilgrim faith departs the world and desires heaven. A pilgrim faith departs the world and desires heaven. We're going to see these two things in this passage. In verse 8, we have the departure of faith. In verses 9 and 10, we have the desire of faith. Verse 8 is the departure of faith. Verses 9 and 10 is the desire of faith. And so we begin by looking at verse 8, the departure of faith. Now, in verse 8, if you especially have the King James Version, the order of the words is going to be a little bit different. Uh, In the King James, it says, by faith, Abraham, when he was called, etc., etc., obeyed. The New King James, the version I'm reading, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called, etc., etc. What we need to note is it doesn't matter the order of the words in particular, but we do need to understand the order of the teaching Abraham's faith and his departure of faith came after he was called. God spoke to him the words of the gospel, and through those words, he was called out of his father's house. This call is described in many places in Scripture. This call creates faith. 
The best illustration of this is Lazarus when he's in the grave. The Lord Jesus Christ comes to the grave and calls Lazarus. Lazarus then responds and exits the grave. It is the same in our spiritual life. Abraham, before he was called, as the book of Deuteronomy teaches us, he was a worshiper of false gods. He lived in a pagan land with a pagan family doing pagan things. There was nothing in Abraham that would lead him to do this. But God, in his mercy, selected Abraham and called him by the grace of the gospel. God calls first to create faith. Not only does this call create faith through the almighty power of God, it also directs faith. The call of God creates faith in the heart, but it also gives faith an object. It gives it something to look towards. This is very important, especially in our day, where you hear people talking um, in the popular way that so-and-so is a person of faith. They could be a Muslim, a Mormon, a Catholic, a Hindu, a Jew, a Christian. doesn't matter. They're a person of faith, generically defined. That is not the faith of the Scriptures. The faith of the Scriptures is an almighty work of God directing the soul to His work in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this call of God is irresistible. The Westminster Confession speaks about it in chapter 10. Chapter 10 of the Westminster Confession teaches us this. This is of effectual calling. All those whom God has predestined unto life and those only he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call. Now, there's a nice theological word for you. Effectually means that God's call produces an effect. It accomplishes what God intends for it to accomplish. He is pleased effectually to call them by his word and spirit out of that state of sin and death. You notice departure there. They are called out of a state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving unto them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills and by his almighty power, determining them to that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ, yet so as they come most freely being made willing by his grace. If you've ever spent any time in the Westminster Confession or in Reformed theology, you'll notice Reformed thinkers and Reformed preachers don't say a lot about regeneration. We don't say a lot about how you are to be regenerated. You do need to be regenerated. You do need to be given a new heart. You do need to be transformed from what you are by nature into a saint by grace. But the reason in Reformed theology you don't see a lot of discussion about regeneration in particular is because we believe, as the Scriptures teach us, regeneration happens through the preaching of the gospel, through the effectual call of God's Spirit, through the proclamation of Jesus Christ, God at His own pleasure... When, where, and to whomever he chooses, he effectually calls them through the gospel to life and salvation by Jesus Christ. This is one reason, among many, why preaching is so central in the Reformed faith. Because, as I would argue, preaching is central in how God saves sinners. Preaching is the primary means of grace, not only where he creates faith in your heart, but he also directs your faith to enter heaven. And so Abraham is called. He was effectually called by God's grace, and he therefore obeyed the call. Notice what it says about Abraham. By faith, he obeyed. 
We often put those things in opposition, don't we, today? We think that if all we are to do is to believe the gospel, then obedience is not a part of our salvation. And yet, all throughout the scriptures, obedience is the expression of faith. Abraham obeyed by faith. Well, what does this mean? This means, firstly, Abraham recognized the authority of God in the call. When God came to him and said, get up and depart from your father's house, and I will bless you and multiply you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed, what was Abraham considering? He wasn't considering himself. He wasn't considering his family. He wasn't considering his own righteousness. He was considering only the authority of God in the call. And so he obeyed, trusting in God alone. You know, there's a great illustration of the obedience of faith. One of, the, one of my favorite miracles in the Gospel of Mark, I believe it's chapter 4, don't turn there. But in Mark chapter 4, Christ is in the synagogue, and there is a man in the synagogue with a withered hand. You remember this story. And Christ is there, the Pharisees are around him, and he asks them, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? They, of course, don't answer him, and he gets uh, frustrated with them. And then he calls the man with the withered hand and says, come in the midst and stretch out your hand. Now think about what's going on. The man is paralyzed. His hand is withered. He has no power in himself to do what Christ commands. And yet he stretches out his hand. This is an illustration of the obedience of faith. The man trusting in Christ alone, recognizing the authority of the command and trusting in his power to do what I can't, I'm going to obey. He stretches out his hand and his hand is healed. Likewise with Abraham. Likewise with the obedience of faith. Brothers and sisters, let me just, a little bit off script here, but let me just apply this to your hearts. John Owen famously said that if we take God's commands and think God expects us to obey in our own power or in our own strength, that makes the cross of no effect. With every single one of God's commands, he expects you to obey trusting in Christ, not trusting in yourself. Now, what does this mean? This means God is not impressed with your obedience, nor is he disappointed by your disobedience. If you trust in Christ and Christ is your Savior, you do not have to obey him to earn more favor. You have already been given all of the grace in the call, and by faith, that becomes yours. Obey him, therefore, as those who are alive from the dead. Don't obey him as those who are still dead trying to earn your life. That's what the obedience of faith is. That's what Abraham exercises. Notice also he recognizes the authority of God alone and he doesn't trust in his own understanding. Look at what it says. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out. He went out not knowing where he was going. This is a journey Abraham had never taken before. He has no idea where he's going. God said, come out of your father's house to a place I'm going to show you. Well, where is it, Lord? I'm going to show you. Don't worry about that. Follow me, and I will lead you to the land that I've given you. Abraham departs not knowing where he is going. Now, we need to contrast this a little bit with, with a way of thinking today. The obedience of faith looks to God's word alone, recognizes his authority, and does what God commands, trusting in Christ, not in ourselves. This is very different than a common way of thinking we find today. The common way of thinking today is called pragmatism. Pragmatism says that he will obey 
or he will do something when he understands the results. You see, a pragmatist considers what the result of an action may or may not be and operates accordingly. This is very opposite to what the Scriptures tell us to do and what the obedience of faith is. Remember, saving faith recognizes the authority of God alone and obeys come what may. You see an illustration of this in the life of Paul, don't we? Paul is on his way to Jerusalem, and the prophet, I think it was Agabus, it may not have been Agabus, but the prophet comes to Paul, takes Paul's belt, wraps it around his own hands, and says, the owner of this belt will go bound to Jerusalem. Now, Paul has a choice at this point. He can make the pragmatic choice and say, well, that's going to be very uncomfortable. I might lose my influence if I'm in prison. I might not be able to serve as widely as I think I should. But that's not how Paul answers him. Paul answers him with the obedience of faith. He says, I am ready to die for the Lord Jesus Christ. I am ready to do whatever is required. Christ has called me to do this, and so I will do it, come what may. That's the kind of obedience we need to cultivate in our lives. Now, I'm not saying you're going to go bound to Jerusalem. I'm not saying you're going to be strung up on the stake the way a lot of the apostles and martyrs were. But I am saying you should not worry about what people think if you're obeying Christ. You should not worry about the consequences if you're obeying him from the heart. If you're walking by faith and trusting in him, that is all that you need to consider. That's the obedience of faith, and that's the obedience of a pilgrim. There's another example of the obedience of faith. You remember the story of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Maybe you don't know that story. The story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those are their Hebrew names. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are hauled up before the king because the king had created a golden statue. And the king's command was that when the music sounds, you are to bow down and worship the statue. Well, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are good Hebrew boys raised in the covenant, taught that there is only one God. And so when they are hauled up before the king, they say to him, Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer you in this matter, meaning we don't have to think twice about this. There's no debate in our minds. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the fire. But if not, be it known unto you, O king, that we will not worship your statue. That's the obedience of faith. God is able to deliver me from these consequences, but even if he doesn't, I have to obey what God has commanded because I respect his authority and not the authority of men. We need to cultivate that kind of obedience. That's the obedience of faith that Abraham displays that's the kind of thing we need to cultivate. Now, to apply this to us, this first point, turn to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter describes the effectual call. And notice the themes that Peter wraps up with the effectual call here. He begins in verse 1 and says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith. How did we obtain that precious faith? By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God, theology. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord as His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. Brothers and sisters, the call of the gospel is a call of glory. God comes to you in the person of his son and says, though you are a sinner, though you are in the land of idols, O Abraham, I will give you my own glory. I will give you my own honor. I will make you one of the sons of heaven. Come 
and follow me. It's a call of glory and it's a call of virtue. Isn't this amazing? We who by nature are vicious, we who by nature are rebels, God through His Son calls you to partake of His glory and to make you worthy of that glory through virtue. This is the call of the gospel. Notice what Peter says about it. It's a knowledge of God. It's theology. And it is through this knowledge of God and this call of Christ that you have obtained like precious faith. Feed your faith. Faith was created by the Word of God. Faith is fed by the Word of God. Feed your faith. You know, some of you who've raised animals uh, will know that sometimes when the animals give birth, there's a sickly one. There's a, a runty pig or a weak chick. And if you want that piglet or that chick to survive, you have to nurture it. You have to care for it. You have to feed it constantly. That's what our faith is like. In ourselves, our faith is a runty piglet not able to take care of itself. We therefore have to feed it upon the Word of God. Because Peter calls this precious faith. We have never uh, kept animals in my house, but I imagine if we did, and if we had pigs or chickens, my daughter, who loves animals, would regard that piglet as precious. It's so cute, Daddy. Listen to how he grunts. We need to save him. You see the motivation? The piglet is precious to her, therefore we take care of it. Likewise, your faith is most precious. Therefore, take care of it. Feed it on the Word of God. Not only uh, are we called by glory and virtue, we are called to depart the same way that Abraham departed. Turn to Matthew 16. The call of Abraham is very similar to the call of the gospel. You remember early on in the gospels, when Christ is calling the disciples, he just sort of shows up at the fishing hut and says, follow me. Where are we going, Lord? Just follow me. Follow me to a land that I will show you. Simon, Andrew, all the rest, they leave their father's house. They leave their tools of fishing and follow Christ. But later on, Christ, once they come to a better understanding of who he is, teaches them more about the departure. Look at what he says, Matthew 16, verse 24. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, if anyone has heard the call of the gospel and desires to inherit eternal glory, if anyone has heard of the blessing of the promise made to Abraham and desires to come after me, let him deny himself. That's the departure. That's what we are to forsake. I mentioned earlier on that a pilgrim faith departs the world. Your flesh and yourself is the beachhead of the world in your life. The world is not something out there. The world is not something conspiring in D.C. The world is your sworn enemy abiding in your own heart. It is your own flesh, as our brother read from Romans chapter 8, that is rebellion to God because it is not subject to the law of God. And so Christ says, let a man deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. How do we do this? How do we deny ourselves and take up the cross? The same way Abraham did. By faith. Trusting in that cross. Trusting in the Lord who died on the cross. Remember what Paul says about the cross. He says, God forbid that I should glory 
except in the cross of Jesus Christ my Lord, by whom I am crucified to the world and the world crucified to me. Your ability to forsake the world, your ability to deny yourself, comes from the death of the Son of God. It comes from His work on the cross. And so even in self-denial and taking up the cross, we do so not in our own strength, but trusting in the one who called us. Continue reading. Verse 25. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his own soul? Many have made this deal with the devil. Many have for the sake of money, for the sake of reputation, for the sake of ease, given up their souls. But Christ asks us this question once again. What would you give in exchange for your soul? The theology that God gives us in the gospel is for the salvation of your soul. But the great irony is that the only way for your soul to be saved is for you to give it up into the hands of the only one who can save it, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 27, he says, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father, and he will reward each one according to his works. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And so Abraham departed his father's house when he was called out. The spiritual application of this, you find it in our fourth membership vow. We've had the, the glorious opportunity of hearing people come and take their vows. I pray, Lord willing, we will hear it again sometime soon. But just as a reminder, I want you to listen to your membership vow, the fourth vow in particular. Do you acknowledge Jesus Christ as your sovereign Lord? Do you recognize his authority in the gospel, in the preaching and the reading of the scriptures? Do you acknowledge him as your sovereign Lord? And do you promise that in reliance on the grace of God, do you promise that by faith in the cross, you will serve him with all that is in you, forsake the world, resist the devil, and put to death your sinful deeds and desires and lead a godly life? That's self-denial. That's Abraham leaving his father's house when he was called out. Do it, and God will give you glory at the end. Well, not only do we see the departure of faith, we also see the desire of faith. Christ alludes to this at the end of our passage in Matthew 16. Did you notice? He speaks about taking up the cross, following him, not losing your soul out of love for the world. Christ will come in judgment and reward everyone according to his works. And then he gives them a foretaste of the glory that awaits them. There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And then they move to the transfiguration. You see, Christ, when he calls us by the gospel tells us the way of the cross is how you obtain the crown. You cannot obtain the crown without the cross. But if you take up the cross, you will obtain the crown. And that's what Abraham looked to in our passage. Hebrews 11, verses 9 and 10, we read this of Abraham, our father. The author says in verse 9, by faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. You'll notice that Abraham's obedience was by faith, but also his outward life was by faith. He's described as a pilgrim, a sojourner. Notice what it says in verse 9, very interesting. 
He dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country. The land was Abraham's by divine right. Genesis 13, turn there very quickly with me. Genesis 13, the Lord expands on his call to Abraham. Genesis 13, verse 14. And the Lord said to Abraham after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants could also be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. The land was Abraham's by divine right. It's interesting how the Lord tells him to enjoy this land, isn't it? I I have never bought a brand new car. Maybe one day I would buy a brand new car. But if you ever go to the car dealership and you're looking at the new vehicle, you're, you're a little... You feel a little hesitant. You don't want to scratch it. You don't want to wear your, your dirty shoes in the car. You're, you're a little ginger with the knobs and the dials because you don't want to break it. It's not yours. But when it becomes yours, you put your Coke in the cup holder. You put your dirty shoes in the trunk. You put your bag on the seat. You stretch out and enjoy it because it's yours. Notice what God says to Abraham. Arise, arise and walk all around it. Stretch out, because this is yours. The land was Abraham's by divine right. Now, we need to also comment here. This promise made to Abraham was not just for the land of Canaan. The promise made to Abraham was for the entire world. Paul says this in Romans 4, verse 13. It was by the promise that Abraham would become the heir of the entire earth. God gives this to him. And yet, he lives as a pilgrim. He dwelt as a sojourner in the land that he was given. The reason God does this with Abraham and the reason he does it with us, as Paul says, in Christ you possess all things, whether life, death, heaven, hell, everything is yours. And yet we live as pilgrims in this world. I think the reason God does this with us and with Abraham is so that Abraham would live by faith and not by sight. Turn to 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians 4. Verse 13. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke. We also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us up, us with you. For all things are for your sakes. Arise and walk around, I give it all to you. All things are for your sakes. That grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Listen carefully. While we do not look at the things which are seen but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Now continue reading. Paul's going to tie this in with the idea of pilgrimage. We know that if our earthly house, this tent, Abraham dwelt in tents with Isaac and Jacob. If we know that this earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, 
We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. What's the point in this extended reading from 2 Corinthians? The point is that just as Abraham dwelt as a pilgrim in the land of promise, dwelling in tents with his sons, living in a place under burdens and tribulation, not able to enjoy, he did so looking for the fulfillment of the promise. Likewise, we also, in our tent, these earthly bodies, which are decaying and groaning, we walk by faith just as Abraham walked by faith, looking for our permanent dwelling. You'll notice also that it was a household faith. Abraham dwelt with his sons, Isaac and Jacob, heirs together with him of the same promise. We could say more about infant baptism here, but for the sake of time, we won't. You ever gone without a meal? A couple days? Maybe a couple hours? Maybe go a couple meals? You're working hard, you just don't have time to eat? Maybe life is extremely busy? Maybe you're in the middle of a crisis and you simply don't have time to eat. Maybe you've observed a fast for a day or two. What happens as you fast, as you go without food? Desire grows. Your hunger begins to increase. You go without something, and then when you finally enjoy it, it is the best hamburger you've ever had. It is the best Coke you have ever enjoyed because you went without it for so long. This is what's going on in our life as pilgrims. The Lord wants us to desire Him and to desire heaven. And so he has ordained that in this life we are to live as pilgrims by faith, not by sight. And so the desire of faith grows and increases, just as Paul describes in this passage. Now turning, what was that inward desire? We saw the outward form of Abraham's life. What was the inward desire that he was looking for, that he was striving for? Returning to Hebrews 11, verse 10. Notice that verse 10, the, the author says for. He gives that word at the beginning of verse 10. This is the reason why Abraham dwelt as a pilgrim. This is giving us the reason why Abraham lived the way that he did. He says for he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. The word in Greek that's called, that, that's translated as waited, it means to desire eagerly. It means to have an earnest expectation for something. You've seen this in your children when it is uh, October, or maybe even when it's April, and they eagerly desire Christmas. The Christmas tree is coming. The presents are coming. They eagerly desire it. They count the days. They can't wait until Christmas morning. That's the kind of desire that's being described here. Abraham, as he lived as a pilgrim, earnestly desired a city whose builder and maker is God. This, this city, it's a very common metaphor in Scripture. Uh, the city is a metaphor for the glorified church. It's a picture of heaven. Hebrews 12 picks up the same theme. Hebrews 12, verse 22. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, 
the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Now, I think to fully understand this metaphor, we need to understand what the author of Hebrews, the book of Revelation, and what the, the scriptures present to us about Jerusalem. The description the author gives us here in Hebrews 12 is a description of Jerusalem on a feast day. This is a description of the city when perhaps it would be the Passover or one of the other high feasts where Jerusalem was teeming with Hebrews. All the streets were filled with the worshipers. The pilgrims would be going up the Temple Mount, singing the songs of ascent. The priests would be offering their sacrifices. The people would be feasting and singing and praising the Lord all in the midst of Jerusalem. And at the height of the Temple Mount, there would be a high priest, Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, sprinkling the people with the blood of the covenant. The joy of Jerusalem is the joy of God's people worshiping together through the mediation of the high priest. That's what Abraham looked for. That's what God promises to us in the gospel. That's what heaven will be like. Not only was it a feast day where all the churches gathered, the reason they gathered there is because that's where God's presence was. God established the temple and said, I will dwell here forever. Likewise in heaven. The real joy of heaven is that we will come to our God whom we have trusted in all of our lives. Psalm 130 describes this desire. I'll just read it. It's a very short psalm. It is one of the songs of ascent. These psalms were probably sung by the pilgrims as they gathered on the feast days in Jerusalem. Out of the depths I've cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Notice the faith. If you should mark iniquities, no one would stand, but you are merciful. I trust in your mercy. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. Yes, more than those who watch for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy. And with him is abundant redemption. He shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is the desire of faith. This is what Abraham was seeking. And this is what we are to seek as well. You notice also in Hebrews 11 verse 10, it's said that this city has foundations whose builder and maker is God. This is a contrast to the shifting sands of our life. The shifting sands of our experiences. Loved ones come and go. Relationships rise and fall. Your emotions are up. Your emotions are down. Your experiences are good. Your experiences are bad. Some days you're on the mountaintop. Other days you're in the valley of the shadow of death. Our experiences in this life are unstable. But God's city... God's house has foundations. It endures and it is stable. That's what Abraham was looking for. And so to apply this to our hearts in closing, Romans chapter 8. What do we do with this? How do we live as pilgrims? How do we depart from the world and desire heaven? What am I supposed to do with this, pastor? You're supposed to do what Psalm 130 does. You're supposed to do what Paul says to do in Romans chapter 8. Verse 18, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. 
For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Arise and walk all around it. Enjoy your liberty that is coming. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what one sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. What you're supposed to do with this reality as a pilgrim is to pray. Is to cry out to God and lift up your hearts to Him every day, one day at a time. You read about the life of Abraham. At every step of his way, he built an altar. God called him and said, the land is yours. Abraham built an altar. God promised to the son, Abraham built an altar. Everywhere Abraham went, he built altars. He lifted up prayers to God, waiting for the promise to be fulfilled. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. And he will strengthen your heart. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your promises and for the call of the gospel. We fall before you, O Lord, confessing that it is not to us, but unto your name that the glory belongs. We pray, O Lord, that you would help us to depart from ourselves and the world and that you would ever grow in us the desire for heaven and help us to see that whatever we experience in this life is incomparable to the weight of glory that awaits us. Please strengthen our faith, O Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.